There's a terracotta sun and crescent moon wall ornament that's popular in Italy. The sun raising its fiery eyebrows and smiling sardonically with a tight-lipped, fold-cheeked pucker of cynical mockery. The crescent moon hangs limp beside it, outshone and seemingly defeated by the sun's vaunting but blinding glory. But in reality, unlike the sun, the moon is unpredictable, waxing and waning in multiple phases of varying visibility, showing sometimes only one side of its face, sometimes the other, sometimes invisible, but always moving towards full, gentle and serene revelation. The brightness of the sun sometimes obscures our vision rather than illuminates it, but dazzling us with black blotches that aren't actually there if we look straight into the glare. Sometimes we're better off being guided by the more distant and less garish light of the moon. On Friday, February the 5th, I attended the third day of Adnan Syed's post-conviction relief hearing in Baltimore, Maryland. I arrived early, having spent the night in Baltimore so as not to have to battle the excruciating DC metro rush hour traffic, coming as I was from the wrong side of the capital city. Because of the fame of the case, I had some idea that if I didn't arrive well before the court opened its doors, I'd find myself craning at a video monitor on my feet in some overflow room all day. However, on my arrival outside the courthouse at 7.32am, two hours before kickoff, the only people striding determinedly towards the building were courthouse clerical staff, and the main entrance was deserted. So, feeling no pressure... I hot-footed it to the nearest food outlet to grab whatever perfunctory breakfast they had on offer. Ha! It was Dunkin' Donuts. No doubt the very retreat that Rabia Chowdhury had been using for the past two days. Rabia Chowdhury is Adnan Syed's long-time and very vocal advocate, who originally brought the case to the attention of Sarah Koenig of Serial, and she'd been holed up for two days at Dunkin' Donuts after being sequestered straight after opening statements on Wednesday morning. I passed up the doughnuts and instead got coffee and macadamia nut cookies next door at Subway. When I came out, there were two television cameras positioned on the corner on the opposite side of the road, both facing down the side of the courthouse building. Looking behind them up the front side towards the main entrance, I could see there was still no one gathering yet, so I went and chatted to the cameraman for a while. They were from local TV stations and of course were waiting for Adnan Syed to arrive but they were stationed about 50 yards or so back from where the vans were periodically pulling up to offload small groups of three or four prisoners into the side entrance there. I now saw how the iron gates against the solid facade of the building at that location on the side of the courthouse functioned. Whenever a van pulled up, these two gates, that were usually side by side flat against the wall, would be swung out perpendicular to the wall to create a narrow caged passage from the van into the courthouse. Prisoners would hop out of the van, handcuffed and shackled at the ankles, and amble nonchalantly, it seemed, across the city sidewalk between the bars of the cage into the courthouse. I watched a couple of vans pull up and all the prisoners I saw were dressed in bright canary yellow, Apparently, in some jurisdictions, prisoners in this colour are protective custody prisoners, which means they're housed apart from the general population to protect them from harm from other inmates or even outside sources. This might be because they're members of gangs or have a prior history of being victimised in correctional institutions, or because their case has a lot of media attention, 
However, this garish yellow colour is also used when prisoners are being taken for a van ride into a public place to make them more noticeable and lower the possibility of escape. Adnan wasn't among the prisoners I saw deposited into the fold-away caged walkway, and in the meantime a young man stopped by briefly on his way to work and told me he'd been at school with Saad Chaudhry, Rabia Chaudhry's brother. I wandered back up to the courthouse entrance around eight o'clock, where a line of people was just beginning to form, and immediately identified Maggie, a woman whose tweet saying she'd be at the hearings I had acknowledged a few days before on Twitter, saying I hoped to meet her at the hearing. She became my assistant note-taker throughout the day, scribbling me clarifications or comments whenever I gave her a nudge, as she had attended the first two days as well. It was great to have a collaborator, and I'm hoping that she'll be a guest on an episode of Routing Out in the near future, so we can share our impressions on developments in the Adnan Syed case. Around 8.15, Saad Chaudhry's old school pal came up from the corner where the cameramen were, and told me that Adnan had just arrived. Then he went on his way to work. When those of us in the line were let into the courthouse at 8.30, there were barely more than 20 people lined up. Unlike other high-profile cases that have been televised, this proceeding wasn't inundated with a throng of pitchfork-waving ghouls, keen to see the perceived monster get his deserved comeuppance from some spitting prosecutor who they'd adopted as a heartthrob. No, there were no heart-decorated banners with We love Thiru. Thiru Vignaraja being the prosecutor for these hearings. But then, the story of Adnan Syed's debatable conviction for the murder of Haymin Lee, thankfully, had not at this point been swept up and transformed into a vulgar and titillatingly tawdry tale by the gutter press, or the likes of haranguing harpies like Nancy Grace. Or at least not when I started preparing this episode. We'll maybe talk more about that little matter in another episode. Shall we say things have taken a turn in the last 48 hours? The family and community of Heyman Lee, sadly, were conspicuous by their absence in the courtroom. At the PCR hearing, the whole middle section of the courtroom was reserved for Heyman Lee's family and community. But after the first day, when reportedly a large contingency arrived, only to exit mid-morning, the pews were noticeably empty, with a mere handful of people coming in the early mornings, only to leave at the first opportunity. The Korean community showing there seemed to only be one elderly couple on Friday, day three of the hearing, seemed to be purely token and not motivated by any interest in hearing important new revelations and facts, given that whoever attended seemed to leave at the first morning break. From what other people said, that was what happened each day, merely making their presence felt but without any constructive purpose. It's so sad when victims' families swallow the prosecution-fed attitude that anyone questioning whether the correct person has been convicted is automatically against them and against the victim. Particularly in this case, the people concerned about the defendant's possible wrongful conviction are equally concerned that the victim's true killer should be found, because that is essential for her respectful commemoration. Hay's memory and legacy is only besmirched if the wrong person, particularly someone she cared about, is in the wrong place. She would no doubt want her family to listen to and consider the alternatives and to work towards the real truth of what happened to her, even if that means having to set aside what they've come to terms with over the past 17 years.
Making a Murderer Parallels episode, we pointed out the tendency of prosecutors to exploit the unique psychological needs and vulnerability of victims' families for emotive propaganda purposes. And true to form, the prosecutor at Adnan Syed's post-conviction relief hearing, Thiru Vignaraja, demonstrated this by producing statements before and during the hearing, supposedly from Heyman Lee's family, but frankly couched so neatly and underminingly in the specifics of the defence's arguments and in such fluent English that one wonders how much they truly contributed to the missives. It's conceivable that Thiru Vignaraja communicated it's nothing worth worrying your pretty heads about to Heyman Lee's family and elicited permission to convey their uninformed feelings in whatever way he saw fit. So we might well ask why that middle section of the courtroom was so empty of members of the Korean community during this recent hearing, and why those few who put in an appearance didn't stay to hear what was being presented. It appears that Hay's family is in a cage of their own, with Mr. Vignaraja holding the key and directing their gaze away from the light, while he dazzles them with his own blinding and misleading glare. I had seen the photos of Adnan arriving and leaving court from the first two days of the PCR hearing, and had been struck by his face. For me, it summed up one word. Serene. Not cocky complacency or defiant confidence, but a peacefulness that communicated his trust that whatever will be, will be. Like he said to Sarah Koenig on Serial, it is what it is. And despite continuing to fight hard to prove his innocence, his face seems to communicate that he will ultimately integrate and learn to live peaceably with, if not accept, what happens. When we were all seated inside and Adnan Syed walked into the courtroom, his ankles and wrists in shackles, and furthermore his wrists attached by a chain to his waist, he nevertheless lifted his arms to flap one hand up awkwardly at his family in a wave of greeting and smiled reassuringly at them before sitting down for the next seven or more hours, with little possibility of stretching his limbs or shifting his position. In one of the daily PCR updates from the podcast Undisclosed, that has done so much to investigate the particulars of his case, Adnan's best friend, Saad Chaudhry, also commented on this, choked to see the dear companion of his teenage years so physically restricted compared to his own ease of movement. Seeing this dichotomy in Adnan, his forced physical stiffness, contrasted with his apparent inner ability to free himself from tension, I was reminded of another young man, not much younger than Adnan, in a similar but paradoxically reverse situation. Two years ago, in January 2014, Raffaele Sollecito was physically free after having spent four years in prison till October 2011 but his psyche was still so obviously consumed with the excruciating, ongoing, back-and-forth decisions of the Italian criminal justice system that threatened to put him back in prison for more than a quarter of a century. I attended the penultimate day of the second appeal trial at the Florentine Court of Appeals of Amanda Knox's and Raffaele Sollecito's murder conviction. In March 2013, less than 18 months after their release from prison, the Italian Supreme Court had ruled that Knox and Sollecito should stand trial again, and this hearing that I was attending ten months later was the end of that trial. 
Amanda Knox had been safely back in the US for over two years by then and didn't attend the hearings. But Raffaele Solecito was there on his home territory, defiantly remaining and facing on principle whatever emerged. This was a long 14 months before their convictions were completely vacated by the Supreme Court in March 2015. And at that time, two years ago, Raffaele Solecito had good reason to be apprehensive. The convictions were declared to be upheld 10 days later. My abiding image of Raffaele Sollecito is of his seemingly aimless roaming during a late-morning half-hour hiatus and proceedings on January 20, 2014, around the large hall outside the coffee bar located across the yard and up a flight of stairs from the courtroom where the hearing was being held, walking around in circles, veering to and fro in random directions. Sometimes he wandered close to the entrance of the bar and glanced momentarily into the gaggle of attorneys, court officials and trial watchers, as if to come in, but then turned away again, while talking in a discreet and subdued voice into the microphone of his cell phone earbuds. The intensity of focus with which he spoke contrasted with the detached and directionless meanderings of his feet. The spectral soundlessness of his flitting and hovering peripheral presence haunted the otherwise banal cacophony of espresso machine hiss and gurgle, saucers clattering on countertops, clinks of spoons stirring sugar amidst the greetings and gossip for those for whom the day was simply another on the job, or perhaps a curious diversion from normal routines or merely tedious tasks. His freedom of physical movement was in stark contrast to Adnan's in that Baltimore courtroom. But Raffaele's so-called freedom seemed more like a painful trudge around purgatory than a walk in the park. Adnan came to court in a blue, short-sleeved, surgical scrub-style prison top. At the Florence court, Raffaele wore an open, above-the-knee, closely-fitted, double-breasted black overcoat with brass buttons. The rest of Raffaele's clothing was casual, bordering on scruffy, a v-neck sweater over an awkwardly protruding collared shirt and well-worn, unpolished brown ankle boots. Funnily enough, Adnan's ankle shackles were almost irreverently ridiculed by his decidedly sharp-looking beige Timberland-style work boots. Both he and Raffaele wore jeans, the only item of garb that did not distinguish them as prisoner and sort of free man. The one item of true self-expression that Adnan wore was his crocheted taquilla, his Muslim skullcap. Adnan also wears a full beard in keeping with devout Muslim tradition, which some have suggested is inappropriate if he wants to gain sympathy with the court. But you know what? He is what he is. And why should he pretend otherwise? A discerning judge will appreciate his assertive yet quiet adherence to what he really is and what he believes, rather than pandering in a fake, disingenuous pose to some supposed norm. He was nothing but silent and self-effacing during the PCR hearing, his demeanour respectfully submissive, and his head and facial cues to his identity should in no way undermine his highly appropriate comportment. Like Adnan's unashamed taquilla and beard, 
Raffaele's casual attire, in a different way, also bespoke unaffected and uncontrived frankness. Take me as I am, this is me. Take it or leave it. When Adnan came into the courtroom and briefly acknowledged his family, despite being in handcuffs and shackles, the calmness and hopefulness on his face could have been that of a proud and confident student about to defend his thesis in front of family and friends. The face of Raffaele two years ago, on the other hand, as imminent reconviction hovered in the air, was flushed and drawn, that of someone who had been up all night. His face looked younger than his years, but it aroused ugly sensations, inasmuch as it revealed the turmoil within, youth blighted, the face of a boy veiled with the tattered pall of bitterly lived age. I didn't see that in Adnan. Adnan's younger brother Yusuf, in a delightfully exuberant and hopeful interview after day three of the hearing, said that he had never seen Adnan so positive, that Adnan has a tendency to be pessimistic. There was no evidence of that during this hearing. On a poignant note, Adnan's best friend, Saad Chaudhry, who's a mortgage broker, has said that in recent days Adnan has asked him about the cost to rent an apartment nowadays. A banal question, but one that reveals so much about Adnan's hopes for his future. For both these young men, Raffaele and Adnan, who were both barely out of boyhood when their lives were irrevocably changed, years of incarceration and the ominous and unpredictable head of a gavel has repressed what should have been the delightful whimsy and creative energy of youth. Both of them, in different ways, are quiet and stoic. Raffaele is now free physically, but he still bears the psychological scars of international character assassination. His notoriety, despite his complete exoneration, has prevented him from obtaining a job in his field of computer science. He's still struggling to find his feet and regain his dignity in society. But he is free. And oddly and ironically, that same moon that shines over Adnan's cell in Cumberland, Maryland, perhaps a moon he rarely sees, but one that shines nevertheless, also shines on Raffaele in Italy, trying to rebuild his life in the psychological and circumstantially restricted cage that injustice has put up around him, despite his physical freedom and exonerated legal status. Raffaele has said himself that he will never fully recover from the mental scars from his experiences resulting from the Meredith Kircher murder. He's a troubled soul. Hopefully, that moon will wax enough for him to gradually find his way along a new path in life. And maybe, and hopefully, for Adnan too. There's a photograph of Adnan Syed as he emerges at the exit of the courthouse after a day in court where we see only half his face, like a half moon. But there's a light in his eyes, an anticipatory half-smile as he searches the dusky street for a brief view of his waving and calling family before he steps into the van that will take him back to his cell for the night. A half-moon glimpse of that serenity he seems to have acquired against all odds. 
And just as the moon eventually gets larger and sheds more light, more will soon be revealed in the investigation of Heyman Lee's murder. A day may come when we will be able to see so much more of Adnan, his true personality, his uncensored message. A day when the true workings of the criminal justice system will be illuminated for all to see. But whatever the future holds for Adnan Syed, whatever the judge decides in the coming months, I think Adnan will be okay. After all, that self-effacing, serene crescent moon glows with so much growing potential. You have been listening to Routing Out, written, produced and presented by Zoe Badovinik.